guys to pray with me tonight? All right. So let's go ahead and lift up tonight. This is really in line with the Holy Place series I've been doing. I, I talked last week. That's part of the series too, but I really focused on the rapture last week. And this is going to pick up on that. So um, also we're going to go into the Holy Place. So this is an illustrated sermon, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a moment. But Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name and through his blood. And we lift up tonight. We love your word. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. The word is living and active and awesome, powerful. And Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. And as we pray tonight and we come before you, we lift it up and we ask you that you will anoint me fresh and speak through me your word tonight. Everything that needs to be said, Lord, help it to really be thorough and powerful and effective. And Lord, I pray for everyone that's going to be hearing this live or where they hear recording. Lord, I ask you for everyone that your Holy Spirit would move upon them, Father, powerfully and give them good fertile soil of hearts and minds prepared by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit would help us all to get locked in and focused to what God is saying, that our minds will get tuned in and not be distracted. Our hearts will be soft and open to the Word of God, that our eyes and ears will be anointed so we can see and we can hear and perceive what the Spirit is speaking to us in the Word of God. Lord, give us eyes and ears of the Spirit, good soil within us. And Lord, as you speak your word, let it be as living seeds of truth that are sown out into good fertile soil of hearts and minds, watered by the Spirit of God, and will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And Lord, I pray for that. I pray there'll be a washing of the water of the word. Lord, I pray that everyone will really be locked in and, and focused and get everything out of this you have for them. And this will be light shining that will dispel the darkness and bring truth. All the darkness, all the lies, all the deception, traditions of men, all of that will be like a hammer that's going to break that garbage down and a light that's going to dispel it and bring truth and revelation. It's the word of God. Let it penetrate and get where it needs to go. And we thank you, Lord. We stand on the promise that your word will not return void. But we do know that there's an element of spiritual warfare there because Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we agree together as a church. We bring the word of the Lord under the blood. And we take authority over anything of the enemy that would try to hinder this, that would try to hinder it from getting where it needs to be, doing what it needs to do, maybe try to hinder people. Father, we bind those satanic forces. We command them right now to be bound in the name of Jesus and back off and go right now. We break your power and let your angels just clear away any warfare. And Lord, we thank you that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. Let the winds of your spirit blow it out among the nations and let your mighty angels watch over it in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. Just speak through me. Let everything be accomplished what your will to be done in this time. And we commit it unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for praying. We're in what's called the 10 days of awe. Um, last week, I dealt with Yom Teruah, which was the Feast of Trumpets. And so that's also called Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the head of the year. And um, anyway, so that's what we dealt with last week. We dealt with the connection there with prophetically it speaks of the rapture. And this week, I'm dealing more with Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And that is the days of Jacob's trouble. And so we're going to deal a little bit with that. And I'm going to go, we're going to go together into the holy place, into the tabernacle. So through this series, I was um, explaining about the tabernacle. I know many of you remember that. I talked about the priestly garments, all of that. And so tonight, I have this here as an illustration. 
I wish that we had actual replicas of the table of showbread and the golden altar of incense, but we don't have anything like that here. But we do have what we're going to use here to be symbols, okay? And we're going to go through it together. But it's believed that here at the fall feast that Yom Teruah, which was last week, is connected to like a judgment day. And it's called um, Yom Hadin, which has to do with judgment, the day of judgment. And I believe there's something to that. And the reason I say that is because the fact that when the catching away happens, what we call the rapture, there's a judgment in that because there's going to be people that are left back that weren't right. See what I mean? So I believe there is something to that. Also among Jewish tradition, it was when creation took place was around this time. And it's also the beginning of the 10 days of awe. So at Yom Teruah, that's day one, and it goes through 10 days to Yom Kippur. And it's a time to really draw near to God. So last week, as I talked about this, this is um, also there's 40 days of Teshuva, and that's repentance. So let me kind of explain that, the 40 days of Teshuva. So the month of Elul is before the fall feast, so that's 30 days. And then you have the 10 days of awe. So you put that together, it's 40 days. And during these 40 days, it's called the days of Teshuva repentance. It's a time that if you've wronged somebody to make it right, it's a time that if you've sinned, you need to repent, get it right with God, all of that. It's interesting that the emphasis on repentance, because I find it interesting that the beginning of the biblical new year is actually in the spring. And, but nowadays, it's shifted to where it's in the fall. And I find that interesting because the spring feasts have ful been fulfilled in Christ, but the fall feasts have not, and they're going to be. And it's kind of interesting that there was this shift of focus, hasn't it? And so I believe that's prophetic. But anyway, these 40 days are believed that Moses, at the beginning of Elul, do you remember when Moses was up on the mountain and the children of Israel built the golden calf? He had to come down to deal with it. So he broke the Ten Commandments. He was very angry. And we know the story, he ground up the idol, made him drink it. He slaughtered those that were involved. And um, he had to go back up again. Well, this time, they believe that it was around the first of Elul that he went up a second time on the mountain. And that during this time on the mountain, he was there for 40 days and came down on Yom Kippur. So that was a 40-day period there. And when he came down the second time, you remember the story, his face was shining like the sun, and he had to put a veil over him. And that, that face that was shining was a sign that God had forgiven Israel for the golden calf. So that's kind of what's going on. That's some of the tradition and some of the beliefs surrounding it. All right, so we're in that season of Teshuva. We're getting to the end of it. And last week I talked about the rapture, and I talked about the last trump. And I didn't really explain that as well as I wanted to. I didn't have a lot of time. It's a lot of information. I got a lot of positive feedback. You guys learned a lot from that. I enjoyed preaching it. And it was just, I love getting into the meat of the word. Amen. All right. So the last trump, some people have looked into Revelation, but that doesn't have to do with the rapture at all. That has to do with God's judgment, his wrath on the earth. And it's, it's absolutely nothing to do with the catching away of the remnant bride. Okay. So you have to wonder, well, what is the last trump? Okay. On Yom Teruah, on the Feast of Trumpets, which was last week, 
there's a series of shofar blasting that goes on. So throughout synagogues around the world and including Messianic believers and here in River of Life we did a lot of shofar blasting as well. But there will be the sound of the shofar that's blasted. And among the Messianic group I was with whenever it was Yom Teruah, here's what they did. This will kind of explain it. There's four different sounds of the shofar. There's the tequila, which is just one good blast. Da-da, and that's it. Then there's the shivarim, which is three. Da-da, da-da, da-da. And then there's the teruah. And you've heard me do this, but it's the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's like a staccato sound. And so during Yom Teruah, what's happening is, is that somebody will be on the stage called a cantor that's, that's you know, saying this, but he'll say tequila. And then there's different people that were stationed around the service there that would do one big blast. So you da da, then somebody else da 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 da. And traditionally, there was supposed to be a hundred shofar blasts. So this is going on for a little bit. And then he'll say shivarim, and there's da 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 da. And then the next person, then the next person. And then he'd say teruah, and then it's da 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 da. Anyway, this goes on. This is going round and round, and and people are listening to the various sounds of the the shofar being played. But at the very end, when it gets around 100 blasts, he'll shout out, Tekiah Haggadol, which is the last trump. And all of them together will lift up their best, their loudest, their, they'll hold it as long as they can, shofar blast. And so it's like a roar that goes up of this strong shofar blast, a loud trump, and it's called the last trump. And that's, in essence, what Paul was talking about. And so it's interesting because one of the words that's used to describe the feast is a holy convocation. And the way that that can be translated is, for us, would be like a dress rehearsal. And without getting onto a whole big rabbit trail, but let me just say this. So every year, before Jesus came for 1,500 years at Passover, there was a lamb that was slain. Oh, y'all follow me. Every year at Passover, there was a Passover lamb that was slain. It was a dress rehearsal leading up to Christ. So every year, now for the last 3,500 years, there's shofarim there's, that's being blasted. The shofar is being blasted at Yom Teruah. It's a dress rehearsal for the catching away because what does the Bible say there will be the shout of the archangel and all that but there'll be the blast of the shofar and there's gonna be a suddenly a catching away at that time so it's a dress rehearsal all right so we know that Yom Teruah was the time of the catching away a suddenly and then the after that there's going to be Yom Kippur which is the days of Jacob's trouble prophetically it speaks of um, a seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, that's going to be a severe judgment. But Israel's kind of the centerpiece of all that. And so let me, let me explain something real quick, and we'll move off this. But I, I kind of have mixed feelings around Yom Kippur, and I think that you probably will once I talk a little bit about this. See, in Israel, what will happen is that at Yom Kippur, there's a time where people will gather together and they'll be fasting and they'll meet together at the western wall the kotel and they'll they'll be offering up of these various what's called slichot prayers which is 
forgive us, pardon us. But you have to understand that all of this that's going on is very anti-Messiah, very anti-Christ. They don't care anything about the Lord at all. They're trying to find forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ. And so you have to understand that there is no forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ. Whether it be through rabbinic Judaism or Hinduism or whatever route you want to take, there, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. There is no other forgiveness of sin but the blood of the Lamb. That's it. And so there's kind of this anti-Messiah thing going on there in Israel and even among some of the Orthodox, Hasidic, or whoever's doing this, but there's some of them, even in their families, they'll wave a chicken and then they kill the chicken. They believe the blood is going to be like an atonement. But God has done with that a long time ago. And besides that, they may do that for reasons of, of you know, they don't want to do something similar to the temple or whatever, but to me that didn't even make any sense. There was no reference in Scripture of sacrificing a chicken anyway. But regardless, um, regardless, it is not going to forgive them. I want you to understand, I'm saying this sincerely, the blood of a chicken, I'm not being funny, is not going to forgive you. It is not going to atone for the sins of your family. And rabbinic Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, there's these tashlik services. They go to the river and they'll toss things out there, like breadcrumbs out of their pocket. They're believing they're casting off their sins. The sins are not going to be washed away by doing that. Up until Jesus came, God was moving through the Aaronic priesthood and the sacrifice of animals, and the blood of animals did atone. There was goats on Yom Kippur. One of them was the scapegoat, remember? The sins of the nation were put on. It was sent off. The other one was sacrificed. We all, we're all familiar with this concept. And that goat, the blood of that goat did atone. It covered the sin. And the high priest had to sacrifice this goat for the sin of the nation. He had to go into the Holy of Holies, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more here in a moment about that. And there was a time that God was doing that. But even in secular Jewish writing, listen to what happened. This is, this is historical fact. Of course, they won't say around the time Yeshua died. They're never going to say that. But around, it is around the time Jesus died. For all those years, whenever they had Yom Kippur, and the priest would go through the whole ritual... Let me go through it real quick so you understand something, okay? He would take off the blue and the gold. He was just wearing the white. He would have to sacrifice an animal for his sin. It's interesting. God made him sacrifice a big animal, a bull, for his sin and his family, but only a goat for the nation. It's interesting. But he would have to sacrifice for his sin, the sin of his family. And he had to immerse in water multiple times, wash his hands and feet. And when everything was ready, he would go into the holy place. But he was only wearing the white garments this time. Every other time he went in, he was wearing all the priestly garments. But on Yom Kippur, it was just the white. And he would go into the holy place, and this is important. He would have like a censer, like a, probably they were like a skillet, like a small bronze skillet, a hot coal in it. And he would burn the incense, and he would go beyond the veil. Some people believe 
that as he worshiped at the veil, he was supernaturally moved beyond it. That might have happened. But regardless, he would go behind the veil and he would put the censer in the Holy of Holies. And so the incense began to fill the Holy of Holies. Then he would come back out and the blood of the animal, the goat that was shed for Israel, he would take that blood in a bowl and he would go back to the Holy of Holies. He would go beyond the veil. And now that incense is in there and he would approach the Ark of the Covenant and he would take the blood on his finger and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And so little drops of blood were landing on the Ark in front of the Ark and on the ground. And it's interesting because he would set that down but he, he had to approach with that blood applied. He, he had to approach through the blood if you will. Does that make sense? So the blood had to go before him. And the incense had to also precede. But he would go up to that ark and the glory of God. There was nothing in there to provide light. Except the glory. So the glory would begin to manifest above the ark. Between the cherubim. Would begin to manifest it like a glow. And he would be standing there before the, the glory of God. And you know as well as I do. He was. There was a holy fear in this. Okay. And so he was praying. And he was asking forgiveness for his sin, the sin of the nation, which was placed on that scapegoat. And he was asking God to pardon their sin. And the scapegoat would be taken out by somebody, and their responsibility was that goat better not find its way back here. So tradition says they'd make sure it's pushed off a cliff or something, but that goat had to disappear. And that represented the sins of the nation being taken. And as he prayed, and it was all done the correctly, when all that was done, during the days of the temple, they would take a red scarlet um, string, like a yarn type material of a scarlet, and they would wrap it on the temple door. This was all done now. You understand, everything was done. And they would wrap that string around the temple door. And um, this, isn't, this isn't in the Bible, but it's in Jewish writings. This went on for many, many years. They would wrap that around the door and it was like supernaturally it would turn from red to white. And it was a sign that God forgave them. And that's why Isaiah wrote in the Bible, he said, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them as white as wool. It was a reference to that, okay? After Jesus died on the cross, that had been going on for years. It stopped happening. And there were three other signs. They would, they would always cast lots about which goat would be the Azazel and which one would be sacrificed. And the lots were coming up in the wrong hand like a bad sign after Jesus died. So that was like a bad sign. Also, in the temple, there was always, it was a supernatural thing, but there was always one menorah that had the shamash, the middle, that stayed lit. And they would use that fire to relight them. After Jesus died on the cross, it would not stay lit for nothing. And there was a fourth sign. This is all written. You can look this up. This was all written in Jewish history as documented fact. Also, the temple doors, which were large, mysteriously opened on their own. So they would get there in the morning and the doors were open. It scared them. The light that was always in there was out. 
And the priest who was talking among themselves that there was impending doom that was coming. It was like a bad sign. And it's interesting because this shifted right when Jesus died. So, I mean, you look at what, at 33 A.D.? And it was like, you know, Jesus' ministry started at, at 30 A.D. And this was 40 years beyond that at 70. So God gave them through the ministry of Jesus and then giving them the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, sending the early church to witness which there were priests and Levites that gave their life to Jesus and waited those 40 years as testing and gave them these signs, but still there was no repentance. As a nation, they did not accept the Messiah and still don't to this day. And so God allowed the temple to be destroyed and there was a dispersion among the nations. And God has regathered in these latter days. There has to be an Israel there has to be a Jerusalem. There has to be a third temple for Jesus to come back. It's Bible prophecy. It will happen. But you have to understand, every year, Israel gathers. And see, to me, this is really interesting because this is going to be happening this week. So they're gathering at the Kotel, the Western Wall, and there's going to be these prayers for forgiveness. And people are going through these rituals to have their sins forgiven but they're doing this all apart from jesus it's a denying of his sacrifice so isn't it interesting that prophetically yom kippur speaks of the days of jacob's trouble it's god is going to judge israel for rejecting the messiah and it's going to be a final judgment a final cleansing a final work that's going to break that nation down to a place of desperation where they're looking up crying out for a savior in hebrew send us salvation salvation is yeshua send us salvation they're saying send us yeshua does this make sense and jesus is going to come and the bible says they're going to look on him whom they've pierced and they're going to mourn and at that time israel will accept the lord and at that time the prophecy paul gave all of Israel will be saved. Does that make sense? All of this is leading up to that. So that's a little bit about Yom Kippur. So the reason why I have some mixed feelings is because there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with Christians at all praying and fasting on Yom Kippur and seeking to go deeper in God. How many knows anytime we pray, we fast, we spend time with God, we repent, that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's wonderful. I think we need to do that. Um, but to me, Yom Kippur's surprisingly joyful. It's supposed to be a day of, of sadness, but to me, I'm thinking, man, Jesus took this for me. You know, Jesus took this. He, he was my scapegoat, and he was the sacrifice. He was the blood. And the thing about the blood of the atonement, see, Kippur has to do with atone, cover, his blood, see the blood of animals just covered. Jesus' blood washes it away. And so to me, Yom Kippur is not really a sad mourning type of thing. I, I have a hard time being sad about it because I'm thinking to myself, man, look at what Jesus did for me. And, but Yom Kippur has to do with the priest going into the Holy of Holies. So my mentality is to go deeper in God, to go deeper in the glory, you know. And of course, if people want to pray and fast and really repent, that's wonderful. But um, whether you do or don't, to me as a Christian, it is a time of remembering what Jesus did on the cross. 
All right, so I covered some about Yom Kippur, and then we'll get into tabernacles in the next couple weeks. So those three feasts, a timeline, the rapture, then you're dealing with the seven-year tribulation, the days of Jacob's trouble. Then after that, Christ returning to the earth, his feet touch the earth, and he comes to rule for a thousand years. He's going to come tabernacle among us. That's tabernacles. So the fall feasts are prophetic timeline of what's about to happen. All right. So we're going to do an illustration tonight. And I believe you guys will really be blessed by this. So follow along in your notes. And um, this is really foundational for River of Life. I've been talking in this series on the holy place of how Jesus has fulfilled the tabernacle, how he fulfilled the priesthood, how he's in Christ, what Israel had in the natural, we have now in the spiritual. We had the fullness and the reality in Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's a fulfillment. And so as, I, as I'm about to go into this right now, I want to say that a lot of times, how many knows that there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death? Would you agree that there's a lot of spiritually dead places out there? Okay. There's a way that seems right to man. But then there's God's way. So I think that it would be advantageous for all of us if we would just humble ourselves, if things are dead and dry, and we say, Lord, where are we missing it? We've been doing things our way forgive us how do you want us to do things and i believe that there's a pattern in the tabernacle i'm not saying people have to do things exactly as we do at all i'm not saying that but i do believe there's an overall pattern and this is going to be very foundational tonight for us in river of life but i think that taking time at the communion table and getting washed and covered in the blood and reverencing the body and blood of the lord the bread the bible calls the bread of presence I believe that that reverence of the blood and us getting things right has to do with being able to come in the right way to God's presence. And as I go through this illustration, I think you're going to see what I'm talking about, that this is a pattern in the tabernacle of going from the outside and you're progressively going through this pattern into the place of God's glory. How many of you guys have felt God's glory here? You felt God's presence that's not an accident God's not going to just do that just randomly just anywhere there's a reason why his glory is here there's a pattern and so I want to show you some foundational things that I believe will really help you and I, I imagine on some of this you probably have never thought of and you've never even heard before but let's start at the table of showbread so if you look on the second page of your notes and some of you that may be watching this, you could Google and look up the tabernacle of Moses and look in the holy place. And you can see this. There'll be pictures that come up. But if you'll see the priest down there, he's moving from the right to the left in your notes. And if you carefully look at it as he's going into the holy place, he just went beyond that first veil. He went from the outside. Now he's moving inside the tent. On his right hand, follow me, on his right hand is the table of showbread. On his left hand 
is the menorah. And directly in front of him, right at the veil, is called the golden altar of incense. There's a bowl on the top and incense was burned. So you have the table of showbread, the menorah, and then the altar of incense, okay? And that's what we're going to look at here today. So here in a moment, the table of showbread, as you can see, I just have this here as an illustration, but it's obvious that the table of showbread speaks of what we know as the communion table today. I don't know if you guys can see this all over, but there's, we have 12 unleavened loaves here, and there had to be on that table 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and there would have been a pitcher and a cup that had wine in it, and it's an obvious picture and type of Christ fulfilling, obviously, the communion table here. And so this was something that as I read the scriptures here in a moment, walk you through it, I just want you to see that this was the first place they went, okay? So like we talked about earlier in the service, it's not, I'm going to say it again real quick for these guys to have it on the recording, but before they could even go into that holy place, the, the priest in their garments they had to wash their hands and feet at the laver. They had to look into that bronze bowl of water and they saw their reflection in it and it represents the word of God and th that you look into the word, you see yourself in light of the word. I'm missing it here. I need to repent of this. I see that this I need to pray about. You're looking into the word and you're washing the works of your hands. You're washing your daily walk. And you're getting washed in the water of the word. Then as you examine yourself, you can go into the holy place. Okay? So let me read some of this. But it's preceded by the washing of the water of the word of God. Alright. So as I read through this, the table of showbread. Number 1, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. Now make sure that you look this way and pay attention and really get this. It is not the cup of blessing which we bless. Remember at Passover, and we do this with the communion table, the cup is held up and it's blessed, and it's a reference here of the communion table that came out of Passover. It is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now, I want you to understand that the word sharing here is the word koinonia in the Greek, which implies intimacy. It implies a very close relationship. And as a matter of fact, it implies as close a relationship as two people can have. So in the confines of marriage between a husband and wife, if you were to say the word koinonia about a husband and wife as close as they can be, that would be sexual intimacy. But if you were talking about best friends and you were using the word koinonia, that would mean a really close, intimate relationship. It's very personal. It's private. And so what's going on here, the Bible says the cup and the bread is a communion, a sharing it's a koinonia in the body and blood of Christ. It's a becoming one with him. It's an intimacy with him. 
So what represents Christ's body and blood is going into our body and blood, and there's a koinonia, there's a union, there's an intimacy with the Lord. Is this making sense? As close as two people can be, it's helping us to draw in. And I believe one of the reasons why that people are not as close to the Lord as they could be is because they're neglecting the communion table. And I believe one of the reasons why churches could be closer to the Lord than what they are, they're neglecting the communion table. And as I go down through this, I believe that many of you are going to see scriptures. Maybe you've never thought of it this way before, but you're going to begin to see how important communion really actually is to us. All right, I'm going to go on reading, but I just want to really emphasize here that communion is koinonia with Christ. It is a bride being close to the bridegroom. It's a close relationship. And see, at the communion table, we're told, just like the priest had to wash at the laver, then they could eat at the table of showbread when they went in, we're told to examine yourself. So before people are taking communion, they're taking time to make sure they forgive people and make sure they confess any sin, and they're dealing with stuff because they don't want anything between them and the Lord. And so when they take communion, they've examined, they've got washed at the laver, and as they take the bread and the fruit of the vine, and they partake of that, there's a union, there's a closeness. And, and I, I don't want to rabbit trail too much onto another point, but remember on the road to Emmaus, that the disciples were with Jesus, and they did not recognize him, they didn't see him. But when he broke bread, and it was unleavened bread, because it was right after Passover, when he blessed it and broke it, their eyes were open. They saw him. They were at a table, and they were, their eyes were open. See, there's a revelation that's happening. All right, let me go on reading. Since there's one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. I believe that there is something supernatural that happens at the communion table that helps everybody present whether you're one ethnicity or the other, whether you're one particular denominational um, persuasion or another, everyone is unifying around the communion table. It somehow supernaturally brings a unity into the atmosphere and brings a unity into the service. And I really believe that. I believe something happens, and that's one of the things that I uh, discovered at Cane Ridge, the Cane Ridge Revival, was the emphasis on unity, but it was a very interdenominational move. And as they came together, they came as one around the communion table. All right, verse 18. Paul says, Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices sharers in the altar? See, the Bible says that whatever was on that altar was holy, and whatever that touched became holy. And so as people were eating of the sacrifice, it was having some kind of a consecration effect on them. As you take communion, there is something that is happening in your life to deeply consecrate you. It's helping to purge the yeast out of your life and sanctify you unto God. What do I mean then, verse 19, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. So when people are worshiping these other idols, they're not worshiping just a graven image. They are worshiping the spirit 
associated with that image. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul was speaking here to the Corinthians and saying, you better flee from idolatry. You better quit going to these pagan temples and sacrificing and eating of those things, sacrifices to idols and drinking of that and then come over to church and take communion. It don't work like that. Choose which God you're going to serve. That's what he's referring to here. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right. So this is a reference here to the communion table. But if you've been following us in the series, you understand the tabernacle. We're going beyond that first veil. And the first thing now is that communion table. Now I want to show you something. The Ephesian church, now follow me in this. The Ephesian church was born in the fires of revival. If you read the story, the second time Paul went to Ephesus, there was a great revival. It was recorded in Acts chapter 19. You remember reading this, that Paul stayed there for two years till the whole province heard the gospel. There were supernatural signs and wonders to the degree that handkerchiefs and aprons that were prayed over by Paul was sent to the sick that were far away and people were being delivered to demons and healed even at a great distance through the cloth. Um, people were repenting of witchcraft and the dark arts and burning their paraphernalia. It was a major revival, and this was how the church in Ephesus was born in the fires of revival. Now, it's important that you understand that. Paul, so when you read the book of Ephesians, remember, this is a letter to a revival church. So it had to do with who you are in Christ. It had to do with making sure your home was in order. But it also had to do with putting on the armor of God and understanding spiritual warfare because you're not going to be able to have a move of God like that and not face the devil. So Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to a revival church. But if you read Revelation 2 and 3, there was letters written to the seven churches of Asia. You're just going to have to follow me because I can't rabbit trail, but it's also a prophetic timeline. The first church written to was the Ephesian church, and it was a reference to the early church. And then you have the next church, the next church, the next church, and you can follow it down through church history the last 2,000 years. And the last day church is the Laodicean church, a lukewarm church. Are you following me? So it's a prophetic timeline. That's all I can say on that because it'll take too long to explain. But when Paul wrote to, I'm sorry, when John the Revelator got this from Jesus, he got this book of Revelation and he was told to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia. The first letter written was to the Ephesian church. They are a revival church. They were born in the fires of revival. For 300 years, the early church, I could go into a big thing, but it, when, once Roman Catholicism came to power, there was a persecution. But the early church had power in it. The sick were healed. The demonized delivered. It was a powerful... All right. So this is what was written to the church of Ephesus. 
to a revival church. It says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, remember this for later. The right hand, the hand of power, the seven stars. The one who walks among the golden lampstands, the lampstands speak of the church. Remember that. River of life, in God's eyes, you are like a lampstand. He said, I know your deeds, church of Ephesus, your toil, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those that call themselves apostles, but they're not. You have found them to be false. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you. That you have left your first love. How in the world did the Ephesian church born in the fires of revival lose the fire? Think about it for a moment. How did a revival church lose the revival? It seems to me like, because I've been around for a while, that there's nothing more dead than an, a Pentecostal church or a revival church that used to be in revival, used to have the fire, used to have the gifts, and now they're dead. It's like they're twice dead. But he said that you've lost the fire. You lost your first love. Now, when you look at that, you need to remember this because we're going somewhere with the communion table and the lampstand. He said here, you, you forsook your first love, and he says, therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. Now, Jesus' message here to the church is repent. You guys be careful about some of the preaching out there that teaches you to not repent. It's out there, and it's going on right now, and some of it's on TV. I love them, but Jesus says to repent, and if I were you, I would really take this serious. All right, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this do you have, and he says you hate the works of the uh, Nicolaitans. And, but he says, he that has near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me just focus on this for a moment. If you look at the Greek, and this is important, where it says you forsook your first love, the first love translates in the Greek, your supreme love feast. That's interesting, isn't it? Everybody get that because that's a major point here. It says in the Greek, your first love is your supreme love feast. You know what the supreme feast is among the seven feasts? Passover because it's the first. Does this make sense? And we know that communion has come out of Passover. The early church, they were not looking for the Lord to come in 2,000 years. They were looking for Jesus to come tomorrow. And you have to understand that in Acts 20, verse 7, they broke bread weekly. This is most likely a reference to also the fact that they took communion. Does this make sense? Weekly. When they came together to worship. And that fits the pattern. I'm hoping everybody's hearing me. When they came together to worship weekly and they broke bread, that's probably a reference of also the communion table, not just hanging out eating fried chicken. So, okay, so the pattern is the same in the Old Testament. 
because remember Jesus has come to fulfill it there's always a pattern there the priest every Sabbath they would take out the bread throughout the week if they wanted to this table of showbread was available every morning every evening if they wanted to they could go up to it and break off a piece they could eat it they could drink of the fruit of the vine in the presence of the Lord it was always available but every Sabbath they would have to gather up the old bread and chunk it out and bring in fresh bread they would take out the old wine and dump it and put in fresh so the pattern is there that weekly there is the communion But not only that, in Acts 2, 46-47, it talks about them breaking bread daily or whatever. And it, it could be, it could be that the early church, many of them were taking communion every day. But why would I say that? Because they're looking for Jesus to come tomorrow. They weren't looking for something 2,000 years down the road. They were thinking to themselves, this could happen tomorrow. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me till I come. So they were wanting to be ready for the coming of the Lord. So this reference here to your first love has to do with the communion table in the church. And also, I believe, Passover, but definitely the communion table. Because communion and Passover are indelibly linked. And so what it's saying here, I'm hoping that people can see this, but if you were to take the tabernacle and you were to lay it out flat and you were to lay a human body back on the tabernacle, follow me, the head area would be at the Ark of the Covenant area. The heart area would be at the golden altar of incense. You hear what I'm saying? The place of a burning heart. I'll get to that in a moment. The left hand would be here at the Passover table. Hopefully this works with the recordings. But the left hand would be here at the Passover or communion. And the right hand would be at the lampstand. And Jesus said, if you forsake your first love, your lampstand will be removed. And how many knows that whenever somebody has a heart condition, that it's the left hand, the left arm that bothers them? See, this over here has to do with your heart. This has to do with you examining yourself and making sure you forgive people and you confess sin and your heart's right. And if your heart's right, then the right hand of power will be extended. And I'll, I'll explain this in a moment. So if people forsake this, they're going to start losing that. Now last week I talked about the rapture, the remnant bride, and I talked about how whenever that young man would come and he would give a dowry, the young lady, there was a cup of wine set on the table, if she agreed to be his wife, she would drink of the wine and set it down, and then remember he would go prepare a place for her. And he would come later as a thief in the night. Remember me explaining all this. That cup is the betrothal cup. Every time you and I take communion together before the Lord, that is our betrothal cup. That we're doing this in remembrance of him. And we're saying, Lord, we want to be your bride. You've gone to prepare a place for us. We want to live a veiled life, a, a life of purity unto you. 
And we drink of this cup saying, we want to be your bride and we want to be faithful to you. And we do this in remembrance of you till you come. We're looking for the soon coming of the Lord. So the communion table has to do with looking with anticipation for the coming of the bridegroom. Could it be the reason why many have forsaken their first love and they, it's connected to they forsook this? Is how many knows whenever you're not examining yourself ever and bitterness starts creeping in, sin starts creeping in, sin starts creeping in individuals, families, and churches that all of a sudden this is forsaken so people are not examining themselves. They're not keeping a purity about them. They start losing that first love, that fire, that passion, which I'm going to get to. Also, we know when Jesus died on the cross that the veil was ripped. We know that. But let me just propose this tonight. That within every one of us, there's still a personal veil that we have to get beyond. And you know what it is? Your flesh. Is every time people come and they want to pray or they want to worship, there's that veil of flesh that says, I don't want to do it. But you're going to have to let God help you to die to that flesh. And it's like symbolically that veil of flesh is removed so that you can press in. I propose to you that this what represents Christ's body and blood is going into our body and blood where your flesh is. And it helps you to get beyond your personal veil. You remember how I said earlier, some people believe that the high priest would have that that bowl of blood and would sit there and worship and pray and he would be supernaturally transported into the Holy of Holies. That could have happened. But here's the thing. Whenever we take communion, we are supernaturally beginning to move deeper into the Lord. There's a union. There's a koinonia that's beginning to happen. It's no accident that the table of showbread is a table where we sit and we sup with the Lord. So communion helps us to have intimacy with God. So now that we've moved beyond this communion table, where at any time it's available, the Bible says as often as you desire, let me just free you up as a pastor and tell you that you can have this in your own personal prayer life. You can have this at home. Don't let a religious spirit try to make you feel like you need to shy away from this. As long as people are sincere, it is available. So even in your own home and in your own personal prayer life, you can take of the table of the Lord and break this between you and him. That in your own personal prayer life, you can spend time before the Lord and partake of this covenant meal. And so that leads me now that we're moving beyond the communion table. And what's the next step that you get to beyond the communion table? The lampstand. And so we're going to talk for just a few moments about the mysteries associated with the lampstand. Is that okay? Because the Lord said, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, if you forsake this, you're going to lose this. So we need to find out what is this speaking of here tonight. So I'm going to go ahead here and I'm going to light this initial one. And y'all just work with me. I'm trying to do my best with recordings and all that. But remember that every day the priest had to go in. But this middle 
light called the shamas stayed lit and was supposed to remain lit. And so every evening and every morning, is everybody following me? Every evening, every morning, the priest had to go out and he would have to kill a lamb for himself, for the nation, but it was the evening, the evening and morning sacrifice every day. Blood was applied. How many knows that we need to apply the blood of our lives every day? It's important. And one of the most powerful ways you can do that is through communion. You bring your family under the blood. Remember, there's one lamb per household. Parents, you can take communion and bring your whole family under the blood, okay? All right, so anyway, the priest would sacrifice that lamb, and then he would take a grain offering, and what they would do is they would have unleavened bread and there'd be oil that's smeared on it and it would be sprinkled with frankincense and they would place that on the altar and it would begin to burn up it's a grain offering and then they also had a, pic a pitcher of wine and they would pour that out before the Lord as a wine libation it's a picture in type every morning and every evening the priest are you seeing this it's a picture in type of the communion table And here we are getting pictures and types and shadows of this being something frequent. But yet there's places that'll take the Lord's Supper once a year. Do you see what I'm saying? All right. So the priest would do that. He would sacrifice the lamb. He would have the grain and the wine offering. Then he would go toward the tabernacle. He'd have to wash at the laver and he'd go in. And here's what he would do. The first thing he would do is he would go to the table of showbread. He could partake of this every evening, every morning if he wanted to. But next, he would go over to the menorah. And those of you that are looking at this in your notes, you would see that's the next stop. And every evening and every morning, he had to make sure that this was burning. And so he would take of the fire from this one, and he would begin to light the others. Don't you remember this? Because the Bible says Jesus is the branch, or he's the vine and we're the branches he's the source and all these other ones would be lit and the priest would change out he would trim the old wick cut off the the burnt part he would make sure that fresh wicks were put in here he would make sure there was fresh oil that was in here and every evening and every morning he kept this manure lit so it was burning bright And so I'm going to speak for a few moments. Are we okay with everything? I'm going to speak for a few moments about the menorah, okay? There's a couple different things I want to cover. One is that this has to do with God's family tree. How many of you guys have ever looked at your family tree? <laughs> Did you know God has a family tree? And we're in it. All right. So let me, let me, there's about three or four revelations I want to give you pretty quickly. So just follow me. The first is that the root system of this tree. So as you picture down here, like roots, the root system of the tree is the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant that God made with Abraham and the faith that they had in the coming Messiah. Out of that grew up a branch do you remember the bible talked about that 
out of the, the, was the, the trunk or the stump of Jesse or whatever would come up a branch. Jesus is described as the branch. Out of the faith of the patriarchs grew a mighty branch. This middle branch here represents Jesus. He's the centerpiece of it all. Now, before Jesus came, so from your perspective, I'm going to start on before Jesus. This is before Jesus. Before he actually came and lived on the earth, the covenant was with the Jewish people and through that, through the priesthood, that people were forgiven of their sin. There's the covenant of circumcision, all that. And so for every three people, it was like two of them would be Jewish and just one Gentile that were coming into this. You see what I'm saying? And also, after Christ, the Messiah was rejected by Israel. So it's like for every three, there was two of every Gentile for every one Jew. That's interesting, isn't it? But see, this was, Jesus is this branch, and these are the, the, the centerpiece, and we are the branches so what happens is, is that whenever Jesus came and died and many of the Jewish people rejected him, the Bible says that they became broken off branches. They were broken off and cast to the side. What happens when a, when a branch is broken off a tree and thrown off to the side, withers and dies? But the Bible says that the Gentiles, the gospel went to the Gentiles and they were brought in and they were engrafted in where that stump was. So God's family tree is made up of both Jew and Gentile in Christ. And he's the centerpiece. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this first off is God's family tree. I want you to see that. Okay, the second revelation I want you to get out of this is when this is not an exact replica of what was in the temple just like these other aspects are certainly not i wish i had actual replica that would be amazing we will do it one day all right but anyway the the temple menorah when it was made if you can follow me because some of you guys that love the word and you love the meat of the word you're going to find this really interesting so when they made these branches it was supposed to be symbolic of an almond tree but also symbolic of like an olive tree too because the olive oil but he said that you're to create a knob and a bud and a, and, and a flower. So it was like a flowering, all right? So on each branch, I don't know if you guys can see this, okay? But there would be like a knob and a bud and a flower, then a knob, a bud and a flower, then a knob and a bud and a flower. So there were nine on this branch, nine on this branch, nine on this branch. Then there was actually a knob, a bud and a flower going up like this. There was four of those four sets of three in the middle and then there was the same thing on this side if you counted 12 and 27 there's exactly 39 books in the old testament you follow me and then if you count these three there's exactly 27 in the new testament so the menorah speaks of the word of god and was prophesying that there would be a 66 book of the Bible that we would have available to us today. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is the living word. So this speaks of the word. Just as the communion table speaks of Passover, this speaks of Pentecost. 
So at Pentecost, we know there's two important aspects. 1,500 years before Jesus, Pentecost was celebrated. How many knows that, see, a lot of people think Pentecost is something different. Pentecost was celebrated for 1,500 years before Jesus came. It's called Shavuot, okay? And it had to do with, with God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving Israel the word. So it had to do with the word of God coming. Okay, and it was a power display. When God came down, there was an awesome shofar blast. The presence of God was on that mountain like smoke and fire. There was a rumbling. People were scared. I mean, God came down and gave his word and made a covenant. So that was, that's Pentecost. But then 1,500 years later, on the other side of Christ, on the day of Pentecost, not the day before, the day after, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell at that temple area upon those that were there with Peter and the 120 that were praying. And it wasn't just the word of God anymore, but now Pentecost is synonymous with the spirit of God. So this speaks of both the word of God and the spirit of God that's given to us. And the Bible calls in Revelation, I read it to you, God describes his church as a lampstand. We need to be in welcoming Jesus to come walking through our midst because when Jesus comes through, he's going to begin to take out his tremors and he's going to begin to cut out the old burnt stuff that needs to go. How many knows Jesus said, if you allow me, I'll prune you and even make you more fruitful. He'll start cutting those old burnt wicks. He'll start pouring in a fresh oil and cause the fire to start burning brighter. God is wanting us to be a lampstand that burns bright. And so as the word of God, here's what you have to understand. When you forsake the communion table, Jesus said, I'll remove your lampstand. Now let me explain what that means just a moment. So first off, we know this has to do with the word of God. How many knows there's a difference between somebody just getting up and telling some Bible story as opposed to people getting up and really preaching the word of God, what God is really saying? That's the difference between a logos and a rhema. A rhema word is a living word. It's what God is saying. What this is speaking of is not just the logos, but it's the rhema. It's the light of revelation knowledge coming in. Fresh revelation from heaven. But also this speaks of the spirit of God. In revelation... It, John said the seven spirits of God, but there's not seven different Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit that's a sevenfold manifestation. And in Isaiah 11:2, it says this about the Holy Spirit. If you could look this way, it says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, the center branch, ready? The Spirit of the Lord. Then the Spirit of wisdom, revelation, knowledge, counsel, might, and the fear of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit comes in his fullness, his sevenfold manifestation, like a full lit menorah, he's coming as what the Bible calls the Spirit of Elijah. The Spirit of Elijah is a very fiery revival anointing. John the Baptist came in the Spirit of Elijah, and it says about him, that people repented he preached a message of repentance he was like a burning flame of fire calling people to repentance and so the spirit of elijah comes it's like a bright fire and it's also got a prophetic edge to it 
And notice that John the Baptist came before Jesus. He was to prepare. When the Holy Spirit comes as the spirit of Elijah, and he comes in all sevenfold manifestation, the Holy Spirit will come to purify and clean house so that Jesus can come in and bring great revival. Remember, Jesus had to go through and cleanse the temple before the healings and miracles took place in the temple. Remember that? He drove out the money changers. Then, after that, miracles, healings, revival. So this lampstand, if we can go back now and look at it for a moment, if you forsake your first love, you neglect Passover, the communion table, the blood, he said, I will remove this lampstand this has to do with a fresh anointing revival fire the word of god being preached in its rhema the move of the holy spirit in your midst the power of god so in other words you know why a lot of places are powerless because they neglect their first love people are not humbling themselves and saying lord i forgive wash me i repent and, and getting things right at the communion table together getting things right washed in the blood if they were doing that there would be a fresh anointing and there'd be power but because they're neglecting that the lord says you're going to lose this these flames will burn out that oil will get stale and there won't be revelation knowledge or power in your midst See, how many knows that the Bible is a one big living word of God? You have to understand the old to understand the new. How are you going to understand Revelation when it's talking about forsaking your first love, removing your lampstand, if you don't even understand the tabernacle? It doesn't make any sense. All right. And so next I'm going to deal with the altar of incense. If y'all could bear with me, I wish I had a big, beautiful, golden altar of incense. If somebody's watching this and has a heart for River of Life, just feel free to send us one, okay? Now, don't freak out. This is a self-lighting coal here, if I can get this going. It's going to spark a little. But the priest, every day, remember, he would sacrifice a lamb, he had the grain and the wine libation. He would go in and he would trim the lampstand and make sure he would take from that center one, light them on, make sure there was fresh oil. The, the, the wicks were cut and pulled up and they were fresh. Everything was lit and doing what it's supposed to be doing. And once he did that, the next thing he would do, he would burn the incense before the Lord, which I'm, I'm going to do that here in a moment as an illustration. And someone has created... A replica of what it would have smelled like so those that are here this is most likely very similar to what it smelled like in the temple in the tabernacle but I'm going to show you here in just a moment about the altar of incense and what it represents because see all of this is fulfilled in Christ how many can see obviously this is fulfilled in Christ his body and blood how many can see he's the vine we're the branches and this is all fulfilled in Christ the same way that the altar of incense all right the altar of incense is made up of four parts and the priest would go right before the veil and there was a golden altar about waist high there was a bowl there and it had four horns on one horn on each corner 
and he would from the outside he would take a really hot coal that was burning so think about this for a moment the bronze altar was where the sacrifice took place where the blood was shed for him he would take a coal from that very fire and he'd get a hot ember from underneath and pull it out with tongs he would take it into the holy place and he would place it on that gold in that golden bowl there the altar of incense and he would have the incense and he would begin to sprinkle it on that and the incense would come up before the lord and so i have a little bit of of incense here i'm gonna put some on here and i know that we have air conditioners going in here so there'll be a little bit of wind but in the in the tabernacle at that time the incense would have been just going straight up before the lord and it was believed and i believe there's some truth to this it was believed that is that incense as you smell this tonight this is probably similar to what it smelled like in there but that incense that was going up before the lord like this it was believed that everybody would face the temple remember this people would face the temple and would pray and every evening and every morning when the priest went he shed blood and went in before the lord and burned the incense it was believed that their prayers would all come together to that incense and go up before god now isn't it interesting that in the book of revelation the bible says about the in the book of revelation that there were golden bowls of incense brought before the lord and it was the prayers of the saints how many of you guys have read that all right so what does this incense represent in the incense that i have here it is four parts that are that make this up and are ground together an equal portion four different parts okay and the incense speaks of praise worship prayer and intercession that's going up before the lord thanks go ahead and take care of that for me so let me say that again the four parts of the incense represent praise y'all look this way praise worship prayer intercession and so as we come together in river of life and jesus said make my house a house of prayer for all nations as we come together and we go before the communion table and we get things under the blood and we take time we say holy spirit come move in power do what you want to do we're going to yield to the spirit of god and we're moving with the holy spirit and we begin to what praise and worship and pray and intercede that is an incense that goes right up to the throne of god in the psalms david wrote about let the lifting of my hands and my prayers or my worship and all that. he was saying let it be an incense before you he understood this principle it represents praise and worship prayer and intercession it's interesting too that on the golden altar there were four horns and it speaks about the north south east and west that as we praise and worship pray and intercede together the body of christ has authority over the north south east and west we can lift our hands and begin to speak in those directions that the plans of the enemy be canceled and the plans of god be established but it's it's in that time of incense that worship and prayer going up that we have that authority to move with god like that and like i said at the beginning of the sermon the priest 
had to take the incense into the Holy of Holies first and it would fill the Holy of Holies with that smoke of the incense, that fragrance. Then he would come in after that with the blood. It's interesting to me that Samuel in the Bible, that Samuel, after he burned the incense, he laid down before the ark and he just wanted to be in the presence of God. He had probably eaten of that um, table of showbread. The menorah was still lit and burning bright. And Samuel was laying down before the Lord there at that, that altar of incense area before the ark and was just soaking in God's presence. I think way too many times people neglect that time of just being in the presence of the Lord. And let me say this real quick, and this is important, that I believe it's very vital that people understand the importance of soaking in the presence of God, but also how to receive from God. So whenever, I remember back in 2014, I'll just tell this story to give you an example of what I mean. My wife and I went to Toronto to the 20-year anniversary of the revival that took place there. And they had a big conference. It was really powerful. A lot of awesome speakers were there. A lot of awesome things going on. But as we were worshiping at the beginning, the Lord spoke real clear to me and said, I want you, there was a balcony, I want you to go up there and find a place to be alone and just soak in my presence. And so I did. I went up by myself. I mean, there's thousands of people down, downstairs really getting into everything. And the Lord spoke to me just to go soak. And so I went and I lay back in the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord just began to come upon me. And the longer I was there, the more God's presence was saturating and saturating to the degree it gets to where it's kind of difficult to get up out of that because you're in the glory like that. Well, nobody prayed for me. I just simply received. Well, let me explain what I mean. I think many times people are so caught up with somebody else praying for them that they don't really know how to soak in God and receive for themselves and the soaking in God the receiving the Bible says this scripture remember this we're given we're all given one spirit to drink the Bible says we're all given one spirit to drink well many people don't know how to drink and so we'll pray for people tonight but remember Samuel when you read that story I don't know his exact age some people think he was a little boy some some people think he was a grown man uh, either way um, some people say that he maybe slept in the Holy of Holies by the ark there and it your protocol might have been broken it would have definitely been broken for that but the protocol was broken before um, but he probably slept by the golden altar up against the veil but here's what he was doing Samuel went in to do the very things I was talking about. He ate at the table of showbread. The menorah was lit. And he laid down by the ark. That incense was in there. Just like right here tonight. That fragrant incense. And he just wanted to be in God's presence and soak in the presence of God. And Samuel, out of that intimacy with God and out of the soaking in his presence, Samuel ended up being a very mighty man of God in the Bible. So let me close with this. You guys learned something tonight in this? Sometimes doing illustrations really helps bring it home, doesn't it? So in the book of Hebrews, 
we know the veil was ripped, but it's very interesting because in Hebrews 9, 3 through 4, the, the writer of Hebrews puts the golden altar of incense in the Holy of Holies with the ark, which is really interesting. And so the connection there is between praise and worship, prayer and intercession, there's a connection with the incense and the glory. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. What he's trying to say to me and you is we're in a new covenant. In this covenant, you and I are the living, walking tabernacle, the Spirit of God. The veil's already been ripped by Christ. Now we can come in, but it's the incense, the worship and prayer that brings you into the glory. So when we come together and we get washed in the blood and we begin to worship and pray as a church, you know as well as I do that we begin to move into the glory. And how many knows God's looking for relationship? And let me just say a couple more scriptures. We know that if we love the Lord, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if people are really the real deal, they're real Christians, and they're real, they keep the Lord's commandments. If they're living a sinful lifestyle, and they're not repenting, they're just tares among the wheat. And they're going to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. They're not the real deal. The glory is supposed to be increasing. So every year we go through the season of Passover. The emphasis is the blood. Then we move into the time of Pentecost, the power. And that leads us into tabernacles. So this year we had our time of Passover where we, we sat at the table of the Lord. It's basically like a very illustrated communion table like a really big communion table, okay? And we had this Passover Seder. We're thinking about the blood, the bo you know, the body of Christ, what he did for us. And we have time there to reverence the blood. And that's why we, we had a beautiful Seder here. But then, about 50 days later, what did we do? We had a conference where we had John Davis come in, and he brought a fresh anointing, and he brought the power of God, didn't he? So we had Pentecost. You see what I'm saying? Brother John brought a fresh word, and he brought fresh oil, fresh fire. He brought in the lampstand, the power. And so every year, you go from Passover to Pentecost, now to Tabernacles. You know what Tabernacles is about? The glory. And so God is wanting us to keep going through these cycles of going from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. Ever-increasing glory. So you have a time of the blood, the time of the power, but now it's the season of coming deeper in the glory. So tonight we're going to pray for people, but I want you to think about this. Learn to get focused on the Lord and to just receive. Learn to let God fill and saturate you in his presence. Learn to linger in that. Many times people get a touch and they feel something good and God's touching them and then they just kind of get up and go. Learn to linger and soak in that glory like Samuel did and let that saturate you real good. Because we can pray for you and that'll, you know, start something. But this atmosphere here, God is wanting to really saturate us. And I believe that prophetically that's what the bride... See, God is calling us to be a bride and the coming of the Lord is near. I felt that when I said that. The coming of the Lord is near. I felt the Holy Spirit bear witness when I said that. 
God is saying to us, get ready. This, all of this has to do with the coming of the Lord. It all has to do with us being a bride without spot or blemish. Wise virgins with extra oil in our lamp. That we're ready to be caught away to that marriage supper where we're going to be with him. And so tonight when we pray for people, you're going to be like an Esther that is soaking in those oils. You remember the Bible said about Esther, she had to be watery immersed, but she was having oil poured on her and rubbed in, and she was being saturated in oil. What God is doing is, is he's taking us in River of Life like an Esther. He's getting us deeply consecrated and saturated with oil, and we're getting ready for our time with the king. All right, I'm going to pray. I think I've covered everything I need to. So, Lord, we thank you for tonight. Let this word get in us and change us. Just seal this now. We thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and shut down recordings, and we're going to pray for those that want prayer tonight. Did y'all learn something tonight?